Welcome to today's edition of the Baseball America College Podcast. I'm Teddy Cahill. Joining me, as always, is Joe Healy, and we are here on June 15th, the day after the end of the Super Regional Round of the NCAA Tournament. We have the eight teams that are going to Omaha. We're going to talk about how all of those Super Regionals played out, uh, maybe take a quick peek at the Omaha field, but mostly we're going to save the Omaha preview for our second episode this week, which will be just literally an Omaha preview. Today, we're here to mostly look back at Super Regionals. It was a fun round, a couple upsets, uh, some really good games, some great pitching performances, some big-time offensive performances. So we have plenty to get to here on the Baseball America College podcast presented by Rapsodo. Rapsodo has become the industry standard in player performance data. Coaches use Rapsodo data as a measuring stick for player development and evaluation. Repsoto National Player Database is a free service that allows you to see how you stack up against your peers and provides a pathway to get discovered by scouts. You can check out the Repsoto National Player Database at repsoto.com slash national database. All right, Joe, Super Regionals, it was, a, it was a good weekend of baseball, kind of all over the place, frankly. I mean, you had some crazy blowouts on the first day, which gave way to some really good pitching performances. You had the number one team in the country going down in Arkansas. Some great environments, not a lot of rain. It was uh, it was a it was a pretty solid weekend of of super regionals. I would agree. I would say it was a solid um, like a solid B plus effort from super regionals. We talked before the weekend about how some years super regionals disappoint, other years they are just exceedingly exciting. And I would say this this year was more on the good than the bad. You know, the first day outside of that East Carolina Vanderbilt pitcher's duel, which was, you know, I, I didn't see, I was, I was actually driving to Knoxville at the time, um, but listened to, and it was, you know, anytime it's an exciting listen just over the radio, you know, it, you know, it's pretty, pretty good game. But outside of that, the first day was, we're, we're, we're filled with duds. And then the rest of the weekend, I thought really delivered though. Um, I don't, I don't know that there's any sort of seminal moment, maybe the Jose Torres home run against Kevin Copps. That might be the one that unfortunately for Arkansas fans kind of lives on for this year in super regionals. Um, Maybe Kyle Teal's grand slam. Kyle Teal's grand slam. Yeah. Those are always, the Monday games are always weird. It's like, you know, uh, I don't, having now been a a couple of years removed from having, you know, having been in a situation where I'm at work trying to follow, you know, the Monday super regionals, like, yeah, I just don't know, like how much did that, you know, really resonate, but uh, you know, um, that, that is another good one. Uh, Another moment where I was in the car listening to it. Um, Yeah. So I thought it was a, a solid weekend. Like, again, it was, it was not the, the greatest I've ever seen, but it also, to your point, like we didn't have a whole lot of disruptions outside of that weird four hour ninth inning rain delay that DBU and Virginia had to deal with in the first game of their series where they were three outs away from being done and ended up having to sit around for four hours to finish off that game. So other than that, and we had a small delay in Knoxville, but it was the, kind of the bare minimum 30 minute delay because of a lightning strike. But outside of that, it was things went off largely without a hitch. Um, and, and I thought we've got a nice, um, varied Omaha field that we'll talk about on our preview episode. But I thought things kind of played out to set up the stage really nicely for next week. Absolutely. Um, all right. So let's just run through these, uh, these supers and let's start at the top here with the Fayetteville Super Regional, where you had Arkansas, which was the number one seed in the NCAA tournament, taking on NC State. Arkansas races out 
to a blowout on Friday night. They dropped three touchdowns on NC State and won 21 to two. And at that point, uh, I was thinking, boy, I wish I hadn't gasped up NC State a little bit uh, this week. And, you know, they uh, they are not looking good at all. And I figured it would be it would be over. Uh, not many teams, I feel like, are coming back well after that kind of beatdown. But NC State did it. Uh, they they came back on Saturday. They won a tight game, six to five, uh, and then that sets up a game three on Sunday. Kevin Copps takes the ball to start the game for the first time this year, and he did his he 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 did his best to carry Arkansas to Omaha. Uh, unfortunately for him and for the Hogs, they couldn't get much going offensively. Uh, they trailed much of the game two to one. They finally got the game tied in the seventh. And you thought from there, like, okay, some more late bomb Walker magic and, and the Hogs will do it. Uh, but cops at that point had been in the game for seven innings and got him through the eighth. And then to lead off the ninth, Jose Torres hit that home run that you're talking about, Joe, uh, off of cops gives NC State a three to two lead. Cops exits. Patrick Wicklander, of all people, comes on to finish the the ninth. He gets Arkansas back into the dugout, down just one run. And you know Arkansas is coming up with yeah, it's the bottom of their order, but it's three guys: it's Charlie Welch, Casey Opitz, and Jalen Battles. All three of those guys have had you know highlight clutch big time moments at the end of games at the plate. So yeah, it's seven, eight, nine, but you know, they, they still feel like they're, they definitely have a shot there. Uh, but they ground out three times against Evan justice and NC state dog piles at bomb Walker. And it's the Wolfpack that are going to Omaha for the first time since 2013. So Joe, my question to you here is how in the world did NC state beat Arkansas, a team that hadn't won, or hadn't lost rather a, a series all year long and had lost back-to-back games only once this season. And that was in the middle of March. Yeah. It's, it's, I think it's a lot of little different answers. You know, some of it has to do with what NC state did. Like I, I actually, I think you played this up more than I did. I think I was kind of prepared to downplay it a little bit, but the pitching has gotten just so, so much better from where it was. And you look at what they were able to do in, in games two and three. And, and I guess, you know, Sam Heifel with his starting game two is more like kind of what I expected throughout the weekend, which is, you know, six and a third innings and it's four runs, which is against the Arkansas offense is, is pretty good. That'll put you in the discussion, but it's not dominant kind of stuff, but it's not even a quality start. Right. Technically speaking. Yeah. Not even, not even a quality start, but they're getting such good work out of the bullpen. I mean, right now, Evan Justice and Chris Villeman are just in there throwing darts. Like those guys have been really, really good in the bullpen and their numbers don't look great when you look at the stat sheet, but you have to understand that they're coming from the same place that like this entire NC state team is coming from, which is they were awful for like such a long stretch of the season. And when you're a bullpen pitcher, like it's hard to nurse an ERA back to health when you're doing it like two innings at a time. Right. So the the other thing about, uh, about that for justice is he began the season as a starter and it did not go well. If you just look at his bullpen numbers, they're actually pretty decent. Absolutely. Yeah. And, and Kelly David to his credit has been trying to tell us this for weeks. And I think sometimes I'm guilty of this. So I'll just speak for myself. Like I'm guilty of this, like, well, that's thinking that it was kind of a convenient excuse, but he's been telling us this whole time. Like 
he was only in the rotation because Reed Johnston was not ready to go in the rotation to start the season. And so he got, we put Evan justice in a situation that he maybe wasn't best suited for, but we had to do it. And so we did it that way. And then once Reed Johnston was ready to go in the rotation, we flipped those two guys. And like, it is true to say that once they did that, they kind of started to figure some things out earlier in the season. I was kind of more dubious of that, where I was like, well, I don't know that like, sure. Like at some point when Reed Johnson was ready, it made it easy to make that switch, but also was that, the motivation the entire time. And I guess, you know, but I'll take him at his word at this point, like given what Evan justice has done in the bullpen, like it's hard against the Arkansas offense. Like it's hard, you know, when you're watching, like very rarely do people bring in relievers against the Arkansas offense. And I think to myself, like this should actually go pretty well. Like typically it doesn't, but like clearly Evan justice was coming in there and like, he was confident against them. And like NC state was confident having him in there and, Um, so that was one thing I think NC state really did pitch extremely well, kind of in step with what they've been doing over really the entire second half of the season. One of the other things is that, like you mentioned, this is something that can happen to any team, but the Arkansas offense just kind of went cold at exactly the wrong time. You know, it it got cold in the biggest game of the season. And, you know, that's one, a situation where Matt Willardson like threw the ball pretty well, um, but, you know, he was walking guys and giving up hits and he was just kind of dancing around it. Um, you know, Villeman comes in and gives up the one home run, you know, late in that game to, to Caden Wallace. Uh, but then Justice comes in and, and really shuts the door. So part of that, again, was NC State pitching, but it also was just an Arkansas team that that didn't look that great offensively in that last game. There were, you know, kind of a, a more than you would expect to a higher degree than you would expect a lot of somewhat uncompetitive at-bats from Arkansas, a lot of early outs. Um, a decent number of strikeouts um, in, in that game. And I know that was a point of frustration for Arkansas fans, but the, the final thing is that, and I, and I want to stop short of, of blaming him because what you said is exactly right. Like Kevin cops gave them like 150% of what they could have wildly expected him to give them in that final start. But the idea that a team as talented as Arkansas, and I get their injury concerns at this point of the year, right? Like there's a, a list of guys who have all been big parts of, uh, the Arkansas pitching staff at some point this season that are on the shelf at this point. So that that's part of it. I don't want to downplay that, but the idea that an Arkansas team as talented as this one in the biggest game of the season, the only cards they had to play were cops and Wicklander again, is just shocking. And so while it, it almost worked, it really almost worked here. Like you do have to wonder, like, you know, if they had other cards to play like cops probably isn't in that game to give up that home run to Torres and like could someone else have given up the home run to Jose Torres who is a great hitter absolutely so again I want to stop short of putting blame on Kevin cops for doing this but Kevin cops should have never been in that situation I guess is what I'm saying like he's proven he can do it time and again but that doesn't mean that it's it's not shocking that that's what they were putting on him to get done in this game yeah I guess that transitions us to the Kevin cops decision and the decision to to start him, which, you know, Dave Van Horn said after the game, they had a very long discussion within, you know, the Arkansas staff about what to do with that in this same situation a week ago in the regional, you know, facing the winner take all game seven there. Uh, cops did not start Jackson Wiggins through opened effectively. He threw two innings and then cops came in for the next seven Wiggins gave up a couple runs, put Arkansas in a hole. I'm sure that played into uh, the the decision process for for the Arkansas coaching staff there. But the the trouble with 
opening with your closer is that and like cops is not just their closer like is he like fully stretched out to be going seven eight innings like he did the last two weeks like and eh, i mean in some ways not in other ways like he's thrown like three four innings all season long so i don't know i'm not a pitching coach um but if you open with that guy that you're used to being the guy the moment of truth guy at the end of the game then you don't have the security blanket so if something goes wrong if top starts to tire like if he's not going to throw cg for you then what do you have and like maybe they should have gone to wicklander to open that inning like i'm sure they can can debate that will debate that have debated that but um yeah it's uh it's just such a really tough call and it is it it should be said that they've had a lot of injuries pain Paulette going out late in the season uh definitely hurt here because that's a guy that you know is capable of giving you three four five innings uh pretty high quality innings that they definitely could have used here. Um, you know, plenty of other, you, you feel like though there, there must have been other options, but also like I do understand not wanting to go out without, you know, using your, your best arms the most times, but I don't know, this happens maybe not quite on an annual basis, but we see this happen a fair amount in the NCAA tournament where coaches who previously have had a reliever like a cops uh who who is more than just a a one or two inning closer uh they go away from the way they've used him all year long i I think back to you know illinois putting tyler J in the rotation late and you know it's just like if this was if this was what he should be doing all year long if this is what he should, what he's doing in, in the biggest moment, why wasn't he doing this all year long? And I, it's impossible to argue what cops did during the, the regular season. He's a favorite to win every single player of the year award for a reason. Uh, and it's understandable that, Hey, Arkansas dealt with a lot of injuries and now this is what's being asked of him. But I, I, you, it's just hard not to feel like there's some sort of middle ground between, yeah, he's our game three starter now having thrown two innings the night before and uh, using him exactly as they had been using him all season long. Yeah. It's um, yeah, a couple of things happen in the postseason that we see that I think are both interesting here. One of them is that totally agree on that point. The other one is that, you know, coaches who have, had at their disposal what we felt like were pretty deep pitching staffs, like suddenly get very, very shallow in the postseason, right? I mean, we saw it time and again, like we're not even talking about regionals, right? Whereas like regionals, you kind of understand like by the time you're on game four and then certainly game five, like you're really scraping the the bottom of the barrel with all due respect, of course, to the pitchers. But in a game three, this is a third game, you know, like teams really start to, I mean, we saw it last night with, you know, Notre Dame going back to John Michael Bertrand and I'm not picking on them. There were other well, examples. I mean, they only have six just, pitchers. Right. <laughs> we had talked about that. Like that was definitely like, it finally happened for Notre Dame and we'll get to that. But like, um, but we, I mean, that, that's just one of the examples on the top of my head, but there was all kinds of examples this weekend of teams in third games, like scrambling to find arms, you know, um, and so it's just um, that that's another phenomenon that we have here in the postseason when 
and, that, and that's true in all levels of baseball, by the way, you see it in pro ball too, but it's just, it's so much, so much more exacerbated in college baseball because there's just so much less trust in, in beyond the top guys. And, you know, Arkansas's argument, you know, is going to be, well, look at what happened in game two, right? You know, we started Lyle Lockhart who has been up and down this season and he was, I guess they, they deemed him to be mostly down. And then Ryan Costiu, a guy who's been good at times and not so great at others, gives up four runs and one inning of work. And, you know, all of a sudden you're, you're playing catch up at that point. So um, they, they had evidence to suggest that they shouldn't have a lot of trust other than that. But it's just, again, it's, it's incredible that a team that, that we lauded the pitching talent for, and rightfully so for much of the year, just even with the injuries, which, which I understand this weekend also included Zebra Million and Caleb Bolden, a couple guys they might've turned to like it, it, but it is still surprising. They ended up in that place. Yeah. Yeah. I would agree with that. Uh, before we move on here, um, Arkansas was number one for 14 consecutive rankings. Uh, they won 50 games. They won the SEC regular season for the first time since 2004. They won the SEC tournament for the first time ever. Uh, there was a lot of hope in Fayetteville that this would be Arkansas's first national championship as well for the baseball program. It, it now won't be that. Joe, what is, uh, and, and also the, they'll have this cop season forever, which uh, again is going to be culminated with many player of the year awards. Uh, what, what do you feel like is the, the legacy of the 2021 Arkansas Razorbacks? So I think it, I think cops will be remembered in a, in a particular way. Like I do think he's going to stand out as one of the great stories in college baseball. He's going to be mentioned, be remembered as a seminal player, not just in the history of Arkansas baseball, but I think in, in college baseball, because he was such a unique, a unique player and a unique talent and a unique weapon for Arkansas to have. But I think Arkansas kind of, I think sometimes we're in the moment. I, I think we're sometimes, well, I guess I'm only speaking for my own experience, but I think sometimes I think when these really good regular season teams fall short of Omaha, I think sometimes I think I'm going to assume I think about them a little more harshly, but then I look back and, and I'm, again, this is just my perspective. I'm sometimes not very good at really discerning how far teams got and how close they really got. So I think this team, I think I remember this team kind of similar to the way I remember the really good UCLA team a couple of years ago in the regular season that put up a gaudy record and fell short of Omaha and some of the other teams that have fallen short that way. And you'd think that memory is mostly negative, but actually I think of it the other way. Whereas like, I can't tell you exactly where in the process UCLA got eliminated. I forget the exact steps that led up to that. I just remember that being a really, really good team that ultimately sure disappointed by not, you know, getting to Omaha by not winning a national championship. Um, and I know that is the goal, um, but I actually have, I think, more um, positive feelings about that team just because I remember how good they were. And I understand inherently that the, the postseason is um, noisy. The results are noisy in the postseason. Anything can happen in the postseason. And so while Arkansas fans probably don't feel that way and, and they may never feel that way, much less, you know, less than 48 hours after the loss here. But I think it is the way I will generally look at it where, you know, I think I'm just remember this team as being just a juggernaut in the regular season. And when it came down to it, the postseason got them. And that's, that's kind of the way it, the way it goes, you know? Um, but I know other people will probably have a, a different viewpoint on that, but that's the kind of the way I think I'll think of it. So it's interesting that you mentioned um, that UCLA team, that UCLA team 2019 lost to Michigan in super regionals. 
uh, a number three seed coming out of the the 16 seeds uh, regional. Uh, NC State was just a two seed, not a three seed. But uh, Michigan, of course, goes on to uh, to play for the national championship. So the Wolfpack, maybe they'll go put, go on and play for the national championship here. We'll uh, we'll have to to wait and see over the next two weeks. For me, this Arkansas team, it's really hard to think about how I'm going to evaluate them. I there are a lot of similarities between them and UCLA 2019 version. Those Bruins were number one for like ten straight weeks, but ultimately when we look back at them now or the 2019 season, like I wrote a whole bunch of stuff about how Vanderbilt was like this historically great team in retrospect. And so like, are we going to just kind of kind of look past Arkansas Is somebody over the next two weeks here going to like really emerge as like, Oh yeah, no, that, that team was like, we just, we, we missed, we, we whiffed on that for whatever reason. I like, I don't think that's happening here because you could tell previously that, um, you know, in 2019, before the CWS, you could tell that, that Vanderbilt was having this exceptional season. They'd set SEC records and stuff. I, I think this Arkansas season is going to live in Razorback lore. I don't know how much we're going to, like, I'm at least going to think about it going forward. There have been, you know, it hasn't been since 1999 that the number one overall seed in the NCAA tournament has won the national title. I can't begin to tell you most of those teams. And there are a bunch of those teams that fell short of reaching Omaha. And, uh, you know, I, I, I think Arkansas is going to fade into, into the background on that, which is unfortunate. Uh, but I do think that this is, you know, I mean, you, you can make a, a case that this is the best Arkansas team ever you can make a case for the 2018 team. You can probably make a case for a couple others, but I think they're, they're going to be up there, but I, I don't, I don't know that they're going to have national residents now having fallen short of Omaha, the, the, the Oregon state team that won all those games and is now, you know, forever tarnished a little bit for what happened. Um, in 2017, like that always is going to stand out to me. Like they were 51 and six or whatever it was, 52 and six. And, you know, the, this Arkansas team wasn't quite that. So I, I, I think I will view it a little differently than I view, say, that that Oregon State team. Yeah, one thing that with Arkansas is they also, in this discussion, is they're a little bit of a prisoner of their own success too, where I think it's, it'll be very easy to kind of conflate like, well, which team are we talking about? You know, the, the, cause they, they've been to Omaha a couple of times recently felt just short of a national title, you know, in heartbreaking fashion in 18. So I think it will be easy to look back at those years and kind of maybe get them a little bit mixed up, which of course is, has nothing to do with anything except for the fact that they've just been so successful that it is easy to kind of get mixed up, which great Arkansas team this was. All right, let's uh, let's move on here. Let's get to uh, number two, Texas, sweeping number four seeded, not not overall seed, number number four seeded out of the Gainesville Regional, South Florida. Um, yeah, that was pretty routine all the way around for Texas. They uh, they rolled out Ty Madden on uh, on Saturday night. Uh, got got out to an early lead. South Florida did their best to uh, to to stop the. The, the horns on Friday night, they get the game tied in the ninth inning. Uh, and then Texas untied it very quickly and walked off on an Eric Kennedy double. So maybe that wasn't routine. Uh, but then game two was uh, a Texas blowout to send the Longhorns back to Omaha for the 37th time 
that is, of course, a record. And Texas is now going to be the highest seeded team in the event. With Arkansas out, the, the Horns are number two. They're they're the highest highest seeded team uh, still playing here. So, in some respects, that has to make them one of the favorites. Maybe not the favorite in your mind, but you know, they have the highest seed. They've got to be got to be considered there. And we'll get into more about our favorites uh, later, probably uh, later in the week. But uh, for me, Texas, uh, Texas has what it takes to go out and win this thing. And they played really well this weekend. Credit to South Florida uh, for, for giving them a game on Saturday and for getting to this stage, period. But uh, they, th- this was where the, uh, the South Florida Cinderella story came to an end. Yeah, and I thought they, you know, it was a pretty routine. When I, uh, you, you, you bring it up like that first game got a little hairy late, but really like Texas coasted into that, that last inning. And then South Florida had two home runs, basically, you know, Tanner Witt had a, had a rough day that day, a couple home runs there. They tie it. And then, like you said, they, they quickly untie it and walk off with a win. So it was, it was kind of, it got hairy for like 15 minutes and that was it, um, which is not to downplay that for South Florida. Cause what I was going to say is that while it was routine, I thought South Florida really acquitted themselves pretty well, honestly. You know, that first game, obviously, they, they you know, it was, a, it was a relatively low-scoring game. They pitched it pretty well, I thought, came back and fought late. And then even in the second game, which was never really in doubt, um, they never really did go away. You know, they, they kind of kept fighting. So I, I thought that was, like, it's a little soulless at this stage because you're, you know, you're so close, you can kind of taste it. But, you know, I thought they did a really nice job of, of – playing well and sticking in that series, even though it was clear that, you know, Texas was just a, a cut above here. And it was one of those series wins. You see this in super regionals periodically where it's, you know, it's over so quickly that there's, you know, if there's some aspect of, of the Longhorns, they're like, well, I really wish we could have gotten Pete Hansen in an inning or something, um, you know, because now, now they're going to go into Omaha with, with some key pieces of the pitching staff, not having thrown a lot in a couple of weeks. And like, that's good in the abstract. You'd rather that, uh, versus the alternative, having guys super taxed coming into Omaha. But on the other hand, like it's going to be a while since until some of those guys throw. So um, it is a little bit of a double-edged sword there. But certainly, if, if it means you are winning Super Regionals in a relatively routine fashion, they will absolutely take it. Yeah, absolutely. And the thing about the, the Pete Hansen thing was like, well, they could have, in theory, got him in that blowout. Like they, they that was a blowout for a long enough time that like they it was clear that they weren't going to need him. The next day now, I don't know what Pete Hansen's like warm up strategy is and all the rest of that. But like, even so, they have three bullpen arms that they absolutely have to get innings for. Um, you know, they have a three headed monster there in in Wit, Quintanilla, and Nixon. And like, I mean, they were just kind of like, oh yeah, we have to get all three of these guys work because only Wit worked on Friday or, or on Saturday, so they had to make sure they got Nixon and Quintanilla in on uh, on Sunday. And uh, and they did it, but yeah, I mean they're, they're set up really well here. Um, Going to be a very interesting, uh, you know, to to see them in Omaha. I, I'm excited to, to to see what that that team looks like. They they've just grown so much over the course of the year. And yeah, to your point, South Florida did. Uh, they they didn't go away. They never went away. They they worked really hard to get that game tied on Saturday. And, that's a, a big credit to them. They got to Tanner Witt in a way that most teams do not. Um, and they, uh, they they went out and they got it done. But uh, I'll be interested to see what, what South Florida looks like going forward. They they do lose some veterans uh, ahead of next year, but they also do bring back uh, several younger players as well. Um, you know, Orion Kirkering, their, uh, their great closer, he'll be back. 
um, I don't remember which <laughs> which day that which pitchers pitched, but a couple of the pitchers that you saw, I think, in both games, in addition to Kirkring, uh, will be back, and uh, it, perhaps this can be the start of something there uh, in Tampa for for these Bulls. All right, so let's get to uh, let's get to to number three, Tennessee and Louisiana State. But first, let's uh, let's take a quick break. So. We'll talk, uh, we'll talk Vols and Tigers here and the rest of the, the Super Regionals in a second. But first, check this out. All right, Joe, you were, as you mentioned, you were in Knoxville, where number three Tennessee was taking on Louisiana State in an all-SCC Super. Uh, there were a lot of storylines around this one as LSU was trying to get to Omaha uh, to send off Paul Maneri. And Tennessee was trying to get to Omaha for the first time since 2005. And that is what happened. The Vols are headed back. Great atmosphere there in Knoxville. They, uh, they sweep through the Super. And now the, the Vols are – It's for all the, that we talk about how good the Tennessee program is, they don't have a ton of Omaha experience. It's not just that they haven't been there since 2005. Uh, they, they were not – they just haven't been there a ton. And – this uh, this year, however, Tony Vitello has has the Volunteers headed to the College World Series. Yeah, it's uh, five times ever College World Series, and three of them were concentrated between '95 and and '05. The uh, you know just generally the Rod Delmonico years there, and um, so yeah, not not a ton there. And best finish is third place, 2001. Um, you know, as as wide open as the field with Arkansas side of the field now, like eh, Tennessee's got a chance to to get further than it's ever really gotten here. So, um, I think they're feeling really good about that. But you're right; it was it was a great atmosphere. It was extremely loud. Um, at one point, I considered putting on my over ear headphones um, at some point just because it was so loud. And I was I was sitting outside. You know, our, the press table was kind of at the top of the grandstand, um, underneath where the press box is at Lindsey Nelson Stadium, and it was just. Um, just is, is, you know, and part of it's because I haven't been in a big crowd like that in a long time. So it kind of takes a while to get adjusted back to um, that level of crowd noise, but it was the fans really turn out like it, they credit to uh, the Knoxville community that, you know, Tennessee students, there were a lot of students there, which, you know, it's, it's, you know, school's been out a while now, now that we're talking about, you know, being in mid June, this is a late year in college baseball, right? I mean, we're at June 15th and we're still, you know, five days away or whatever from the college world series starting. So um, you know, four days away. So uh, this is a, a late year in the calendar for college baseball. So the students been, you know, been out of school a while and they, they showed up in force and, and part of it, you know, and, and I heard this, I, I, I hear you other SEC school fans, like, yes, their stadium is small capacity wise. So the overflow crowds outside, you know, if they were playing this at, at the dude or at bomb or whatever, like all those people would have fit inside. I get it. But still considering Tennessee and, and look, the fact that this was not considered one of the better fan bases in sec baseball. And now they've really wrapped their arms around this team. And it's easy to see why, like it's a team that kind of has a love affair with their fans and the fans with them. Um, it's kind of a mutual admiration society there. Um, they've really taken on the attitude of their coach, Tony Vitello, who is um, high energy and charismatic and funny. Like he, he, you know, his post-game press conferences are, you know, laced with, references to movies like forgetting Sarah Marshall and, you know, other sports references. And like, he's pretty quick on his feet. And so like, he's just a, 
a likable guy if he's on your team. And also he's one of those people who has become a target for other programs that he doesn't coach because people don't like that. He, you know, is, does some of the things that he does and is as energetic as he is. And, and, you know, all of that kind of stuff that, that people tend to not like, and that people tend to liken their coaches and players and don't want other coaches and players to, to do. So the team has really kind of taken on that, that attitude. They've got like a, a swagger and a confidence about them. And this series was really wasn't close. I mean, there, the first game was a four to two game. Um, LSU got absolutely everything it could have wanted out of Michaela Hilliard in a start. And they absolutely had to have it, especially when you consider what happened in game two um, at the time, we did not know that Landon Marceau was going to just be gassed during his start and would not have particularly good stuff and was only going to throw three innings. But, you know, Michaela Hilliard comes, Hilliard comes out and throws the ball pretty well, keeps LSU in that game. But it really just kind of felt like Tennessee biding its time until it could score the runs it needed to. And ultimately, it scored runs on, like, walks and a defensive miscue from Kay Doty and, um, you know, just kind of a bloop single here and there. They never really got going offensively, but they pulled it out because the pitching was, was really good on that day as well. Um, Chad Dallas, 12 strikeouts, but then in the second game, you saw Tennessee operating at full capacity, right? Like they, they, they got to Marceau immediately. It was clear. Marceau wasn't on his game. They made him pay and LSU just desperately kept trying to find somebody to get out and they couldn't find anybody. Um, it didn't matter who they threw out there. AJ Labus threw the ball really well. He was kind of the exception. Otherwise guys were just getting hit. And I think that's, like I said, that that's Tennessee working at, at full capacity. Um, but it really kind of felt this, this weekend, really, I don't want to short change LSU and the accomplishment of them getting there. And also there's the story of this being pulmonary's last games as a college coach, but this weekend really did feel like a coronation for Tennessee going back to Omaha. It, it, to me, anyway, it didn't feel so much like a competitive series as it just kind of felt like Tennessee's March to Omaha here. Yeah. I thought that this was going to be a little bit tighter than it was when they played in March you know, it was like three run or uh, the three games were decided by a total of four runs. And I thought we were in for something a little more like that. than and we got that in the first game, didn't really get into the second game. Um, you know, so it, an incredible season by Tennessee now continues. And I think I've seen betting lines that like Tennessee is right there with Vanderbilt uh, is, is being favored. Uh, now that's after some early money poured into to the schools from the state of Tennessee. So uh, we'll, uh, we'll see about that. I, the, uh, th- there is a possibility that we get an all Tennessee um, finals. The, the bracket allows for that. That would be, uh, that would be interesting to say the least. But I, I, I think that, you know, for Tennessee to get back to this stage, something that they have been really, really trying to do since the, they, they last went in 2005, it, it, it's been, you know, noted a lot that, that they have not been to this, this point. So they're playing for more. There's no doubt about that, but just to get to this stage is a, is a very important step in the development of that program. As for LSU, this was the end of the line for pulmonary. Um, there was not, he, unlike Mike Martin two years ago, he was not able to, to get LSU to, to Omaha for, for one final send off there. Um, Still an impressive run in the NCAA tournament to go out and win the uh, the Eugene Regional through the losers bracket uh, and, and to get to this point. Um, an incredible career. Uh, just 
you were there, Joe, for for the final game. I mean, what, what did you take away? What, what were what were your thoughts on uh, on that? Yeah, was I? You know, it's the suddenness. It dawned on me the suddenness of super regionals really aren't maybe the right. Um, it seems like that's not really the the way that it's almost easier to go out in regionals after a long run. I feel like um, than super regionals because the suddenness of the super regional format doesn't really allow for kind of the processing of that because within 24 hours, you know, game one is at seven local and then game two is at three local. So it's over before seven o'clock. So within 24 hours, LSU is done. And, you know, pulmonary's his career is just kind of over. And, you know, in Omaha, you have the gaps in between. So with Mike Martin, we kind of, you know, we saw it coming. We knew it was a possibility a couple days in advance and, you know, all of that kind of stuff, but this didn't really allow for that. And so I don't want to say it was anticlimactic because that's not really what it's about. The retirement is about his reflection and what he's feeling and all that kind of stuff. It's not about us, but um, the suddenness of it was, was really, really jarring. Um, but, you know, I think the, the blowout nature of that second game probably did allow for him to be in a little bit more of a reflective place because he talked about in post game, you know, in the ninth inning, he started thinking about his dad. And of course we've mentioned Demi Maneri, his father, who was a legendary coach in South Florida and um, at Miami Dade college. And, you know, he, he talked about, you know, just feeling so grateful to have had the journey he had. And he thought about, you know, all those years talking to his dad about what he wanted to do and what he wanted to be and what he wanted his career to be. And the fact that he got to achieve that and how grateful he was for that. Um, and that, you know, he got emotional in his post game and he said, look, this is, you know, this, these are not sad tears. These are just tears of, of happiness and of joy that I've gotten to do this for 39 years. And, and you know, it was, it was clear that he, even though the, the end was sudden, like he had, he, he had given that a lot of thought. And I think furthermore, because of the nature of the game, like I said, I think he had some time to kind of reflect on that to a greater degree than if he was trying to you know, if, if he and Alan Dunn were spending all of the last few innings trying to think about pitching matchups to, to bring home a win, you know. Um, so it's um, it, it was it was in, in a lot of ways, I think it was a little bit, like I said, anticlimactic because of the way the games went. But on, on the other hand, I think to say that is also to lose what this particular team did, because I think there's an argument to be made when and I wrote this in the, the, the piece online that. Um, I think that loses how great what he did this year was. I mean, this was a team that started one and eight in conference play and, and with three weeks left was seven and 14 in the sec and basically needed to win their last three series to have any hope of getting into the postseason, And they did it. And there was still a real argument you made. They maybe shouldn't have gotten in in the end, but they did. And they, they made that move and, and it wasn't just a fluky thing. It was, you know, there were, there was development in that lineup. That lineup was legit dangerous. I too thought this, this weekend would be this past weekend would be a lot more competitive in part because I thought, look, this lineup can get you. And they did a little bit in that second game. It was just far too little in the end, but um, the way that team kind of came along and grew up a little bit before our eyes, like not only allowed this run to happen to give Maneri at least a shot to get back to Omaha one more time. uh, But also when you talk about leaving, leaving things in a good place for the next guy, whoever that ends up being, um, whoever is in that dugout next year is, is going to be in a really good place, particularly when you talk about the lineup, because there is a lot of really, there are a lot of really talented young players in that lineup who are going to be really, really good for another couple of years in the SEC. 
definitely a good place for LSU to leave it there. Uh, inheriting Trey Morgan and Dylan Cruz as true freshmen, some other really good players there as well, but just those two guys as true freshmen. I mean, what a what a what a couple guys to to have on your team for the next couple of years for whoever the next LSU head coach will be. Something we'll we'll certainly cover as uh, as that search continues. All right, let's move on to Nashville. It was number four, Vanderbilt, number 13, East Carolina. Uh, Vanderbilt sweeps it. Kamal Rocker, Jack Leiter were both excellent for the for the doors. It was a it was a really good pitchers duel to start off the weekend between Gavin Williams and Kamar Rocker. Gavin Williams was good. Kamar Rocker was just better there on Friday. And then on Saturday, uh, Jack Leiter pitches the clincher for the doors. And they are headed back to Omaha. East Carolina falls short again. This is a, a program that uh, you can talk reasonably about being the the best uh, the, the best program to have never been to the College World Series. Uh, they uh, they just came up against two really good pitchers, a Vanderbilt team that's playing pretty well. I mean, credit to East Carolina and their pitching staff for holding the Vanderbilt offense down. Uh, it was a very offensive weekend around the country. That was not the case here in, uh, in Nashville. Uh, part of that is just how good the two pitching staffs were. So, uh, you know, cre- again, credit to the Pirates uh, for holding the, the Vanderbilt offense down, but I, I don't think that's going to provide them a whole lot of solace as they uh, are, are going to feel, you know, pretty disappointed that, that again, they're, they're falling short of Omaha. But that, uh, that Super Regional feels like it happened like two weeks ago, right? Like it's, it's one of those that it was just over – so quickly that it, it's like, well, there, there was that. And like, it was well played and you mentioned the pitcher's duels and that's absolutely true. And um, the games were close, but didn't necessarily feel like it. Cause it, at no point did it really feel like East Carolina was a threat offensively against, you know, rocker and, and lighter in particular. And, you know, obviously the, the story here is, is Vanderbilt moving on, but I also think it's, it's just as interesting that East Carolina again, like falls short, in the super region around. And I, I tweeted this out and, and you and I have talked about it offline too, that, you know, East Carolina has just had awful luck when it comes to their matchups in the super regionals. And, and that's part of it. And, and while it's also true that ECU just doesn't seem to play particularly well in, in super regionals. And also in part because of conference affiliation, it is, it is typically not hosting them. And that's part of it is that's a big part of it. Um, they, they're, they've never gotten the luck of, being across from the regional where the three or four seed wins it, you know, um, I went back and, and did the full tally of it. And so in 2001, they hosted, but they hosted in Kinston because Clark LeClaire was not built yet. Um, so they weren't hosting on campus and they hosted a regional two seed in Tennessee, but Tennessee was a hosting two seed. So they weren't even a true two seed. And Oh, by the way, that team had Chris Burke and finished third in the college world series. So they lose that one, but here are the next, five basically the other five supers they've been in 2004 against number two national seed south carolina 2009 against number four national seed north carolina 2016 against number five national seed texas tech 2019 against number seven national seed louisville and then 2021 against number four national seed vanderbilt and so um multiple things can be true and they don't they haven't you know they played pretty well in that Texas tech super regional in Lubbock. I seem to remember, but like for the most part, they, they typically don't play their best baseball there. And that's true. But on the other hand, there are very, very few teams that are going to win super regionals against what I just laid out there and what they've had to go through the last, you know, five times they've been in supers. Yeah, that's a, that's a really good point. 
And, you know, you're talking about, uh, you know, also in the old format here, you're, you're, you're talking about having to face, um, you know, having to go through North Carolina a lot of times at, at a time when uh, North Carolina really was, was rocking as a program. You know, you, you think about those teams that went to Omaha four straight times and the teams that played for the national title. I mean, it, it's just a hard deal. Um, and then having changed the format. So now that, you know, you're all, everything's seated, um, you know, the last two times now, Louisville on the road, Vanderbilt on the road, it, it's a tough deal. I think at some point this program breaks through probably like, I mean, you, you get to this stage enough times, eventually it's going to happen for you. Uh, but it's, uh, you know, it, it, it's just a remarkable thing that they haven't been able to, uh, to get to that point uh, yet. And, and, you know, Vanderbilt played really well this weekend. You know, the, the, we've talked about how difficult it is to beat rocker and lighter, but like at times they've looked a little shaky or whatever. Uh, that was definitely not the case here. I don't know if, um, you know, it's, uh, if it was just one of those things or if those two guys just really liked pitching on that stage, you know, whatever it was, um, rocker and lighter were at their best. The Vanderbilt bullpen came to play as well. And uh, when that's happening, you know, it, there are not many teams in the country that are going to go out and beat Vanderbilt, especially in Nashville. Yeah, it was, um, it, it, de- it definitely was a thought that crossed my mind that just, you know, we, <laughs> I guess we haven't seen this with Lighter yet. This was our first, these last couple of weeks have been our first data points on him in these big moments, but, but Rocker has risen to the occasion time and time again in, in these types of, in these types of moments. So it's, it does seem like they, they find another, another level there. And that, that obviously added a little bit, a little bit to it. I'm with you that East, East Carolina, I think gets there at, at some point. And we'll talk about this a little bit, I assume with, with DBU, but it's just really hard when you're trying to go from one plane to another, um, you know, one level to another in college baseball. And it takes more time, more time than you think. Um, now with some better luck, could you see you've already got, they've had teams that have been good enough to get to Omaha. I guess I'll just put it that way, but it hasn't happened. I assume it still will happen. The, the, the raw materials are just so good there at ECU. I think that that is still very much something that will happen at some point, but man, it's gotta be frustrating. Absolutely agree on that all. Uh, all right, let's go to Tucson. That was number five, Arizona, number 12, Ole Miss. I went to three games. It was as offensive as we thought it would be. I, I feel like Arizona wins the first game. Almost wins the second game with Doug Nikhazy starting. Stop me if you've heard that before. Uh, and then Arizona just rolled on uh, on Sunday. Left absolutely no doubt. Uh, Ole Miss started Taylor Broadway, their closer. And he is a little bit more of a true closer, though he has you know certainly been stretched out. They got three pretty good innings out of him, but then in the fourth, uh, Arizona got to him. And, uh, you know, that, that, was, that was pretty much all she wrote there. You talk about... I, you know, so first of all, Arizona back to Omaha for the first time since 2016 when they played for the national title. Now in the first, uh, what is that, five seasons of, of Jay Johnson, they've been to Omaha twice, uh, which is which is pretty good. And I think that they'll have a chance to make a deeper run in the World Series again this year. Uh, on the Ole Miss side, though, I mean, we, we just talked about how, you know, ECU hasn't been able to get over the hump. Ole Miss has gone over the hump. Obviously, they, they went to Omaha under Mike Bianco in 2014, have not been able to get back since, uh, despite being in a ton of super regionals along the way and hosting regionals. And, I, you know, sometimes it's just hard to do. Uh, but at, at, 
at another point, you do have to just wonder about like, why is this not happening? Um, you know, whether that's fair or not. I mean, you get to this stage enough times you play in the game threes that they've played in just at some point do, I feel like start to wonder a little bit. Yeah, I think that's, I think that's, that's probably right because we, we've gotten to the point now where we talked about the results in the postseason being noisy and you, you can't always draw conclusions from small samples in the postseason. But on the other hand, Ole Miss has been at this stage so often and has so often come up short that you do, you do have to start to, and we can wonder without having answers, right? I feel like sometimes people get, um, I feel like sometimes it's thought of is that we can't say that or speculate about that without having our own answer for why that is. I don't think that's true. I think we can say like, there might be something here. And also we don't know what that is um, because we're not in that locker room. Like we're not, we're not with those teams. Like we can't, you know, even the people who cover Ole Miss locally who do a very good job are just kind of like, yeah, something seems up here. Like in terms of like, statistically speaking, like you think a team is teams as talented as the ones they put forth, like should have broken through more often and we can't really explain it. So um, just tough, you know, like, it's just, this, this super regional reminded me by the way of, um, was it the last one Ole Miss was in against Arkansas? Was that 19? Um, where it was like three blowouts, you know, <laughs> like three, I think maybe that was correct. Yes. Yeah. They were, it was definitely them. I just can't remember if it was 18 or 19. Um, but yeah, they, well, they didn't make it an 18. So it must've been 19. Okay. So yeah, 19 Arkansas and Ole Miss, a super regional with three blowouts in different directions. Like that's, that's kind of what this was, you know? Um, I, I didn't spend as much time watching this one as I thought in part because of that, you know, and in, in, in part because my game that I was there overlapped with theirs in some respects, you know, all that kind of stuff. So, um, it just wasn't, it was compelling theater in a lot of ways. Cause we, we saw kind of what makes those teams exciting and, and, and unpredictable in some ways. Um, but on the other hand, they just, they weren't particularly competitive games. Um, and, and, you know, Ole Miss is, is back in this kind of similar place it's been where you kind of have to wonder, you know, what, what the next step is here. And, and the only real answer for better or worse is just to kind of keep doing what you're doing because you are getting to that point. Like this is not a, this isn't if it, if it ain't broke, don't fix it type of situation where I don't, I don't know that there's really anything you can do specifically to target the idea that we're getting caught up in super regionals and can't get Doma because that's such a, that's such a small minute change in the difference in the grand scheme of things that I just, I don't know that that's something they can really change. You know, it, it's just, um, I don't know it, it but it, it just is very confounding that, that we keep having this type of conversation about Ole Miss. Yeah, and the, the other thing here is, you know, we talked about the pitching injuries for Arkansas and how different things might have been if, if they have X, Y, and Z healthy. I mean, Ole Miss has been dealing with Outgunner Hogland for months now. Um, you know, Tim Elko came back and, and gave it everything he had and then some. But, you know, it, it, it's different when he's not out there playing third base. And, um, you know, you can point to a, another couple injuries. And I get it. That's part of the game. But it, it is also you know, something to be said for part of the reason why they needed Nikhazy and leaned on him as heavily as they did is because they didn't have hockey. And, uh, you know, it, it just changes your team when you take out your, your opening day starter. Uh, there's, there's, there's no way around that. Uh, from Arizona's side, this was, I, it was a really good weekend. Uh, Garrett Irvin did not have a good start on in, in game two on Saturday. Other than that, though, not a whole lot 
really went terribly wrong. I mean, yeah, the game got out of hand on Saturday, um, but I, I wouldn't be too concerned about that. I feel like Arizona is playing really good baseball here as they go to uh, as they go to Omaha. Yeah, I mean, holding ultimately holding Ole Miss to three runs and the two wins like has to be seen as a, as a big time win because I thought I think we both thought there was at least one or two of these games that were going to be like 10 eight type games. And they just, they just weren't, you know, they, they pitched pretty well in those two wins. And, you know, if Garrett Irvin is, a, I mean, it's an incredible weekend. I guess you don't have a third game if Garrett Irvin pitches like he pitched in the regional, but you know, certainly that's in there. So when you combine the fact that, well, you feel like he'll bounce back with some of the strides they've made on the pitching staff around that, like, I think they have to be feeling pretty good about what they saw last weekend. All right. So let's move on here to Columbia where you had UVA and Dallas Baptist playing in Columbia, South Carolina, of course, neutral site uh, because the NCAA this year changed the hosting protocols to account for COVID testing centers that needed to be set up. And so DBU and Virginia were both number three seeds. They were not hosts. They could not move it to to their home parks uh, due to the testing stuff. So they had it in Columbia and UVA comes out on top Took them three games to do it. They were tight games, all three of them. Uh, ultimately, Virginia wins it on Monday afternoon. Kyle Teal hits a go-ahead grand slam in, uh, what was that, the seventh inning. And Virginia goes on to win 5-2. to two. DBU's second ever Super Regional appearance falls just short. That's a, a really good program that will like we're talking about with ECU, like I, I think DBU eventually gets to Omaha, just wasn't to be this year. Virginia, meanwhile, which we, uh, we of course, had top five in the preseason. Uh, that didn't look great for a whole lot of the, the season. But now here they are going to Omaha. And I love where the, this team's at. They've just played so well in the second half. The coach I spoke to for their scouting report, their, their anonymous scouting report in our Super Regional preview, um, you know, I asked him, like, is the momentum sustainable? And he said, yes, because it's not, it's not like a real, like new momentum or anything. It's just, they've gotten better and better continually all season long. And now they're at a point where they are, this is just how good they are. And, you know, so I, I think that they, uh, you know, when, when you look at the way the pitching staff has come together. When you look at the way the lineup has come together, there's a lot to like about this, this UVA team. And you saw it this weekend. They, they pitched well uh, most of the, the, the weekend. They hit home runs when they needed them. They found a way to score runs, and, and they're going back to Omaha. Yeah, it's, um, you know, it's a little bit different for me than like with NC State because NC State early in the year was – the position players are playing really well and the pitching is just such a kind of a mess that they were really struggling in that way. Virginia was different in that nothing was going right early. Like, I think it's easy to really overlook just how, I mean, they were four and 11 in the ACC at one point and we're just down and out and we thought, Whoa, this is a lost year. And then they, they just have completely turned that around. And I think it was the, the ways in which they are really well set up to win in the postseason were just completely on display. Like, would they have liked, would they have liked to have gotten a little more offensive production? I'm sure the answer is yes there. Um, because ultimately they were pretty tight games because DBU pitched pretty well and kind of DBU with its relatively shallow pitching staff was doing a pretty good job of cobbling it together ultimately. Um, but Virginia was just able to throw like arm after arm after, like they just have arms hiding in all of the corners. Like Stephen Schock did not pitch. 
at all. Um, and he threw a lot in the regional. And so like, you know, maybe that was like, ultimately we'd like to give him t- the time off, whatever. Also, like, I think it was a matchup deal where DBU is a team because they play in the Missouri Valley and, and yes, they play good teams in non-conference, but because they're in the Missouri Valley, they're not seeing high end velo. And so that was probably also part of it where they felt like it was a better matchup to throw velo at them. Um, but they, Virginia just like arm after arm after arm coming out, throwing the ball well. And, and, you know, Griff McGarry giving them the start he gave them in game two was a big game changer because you still don't really always know what you're going to get from McGarry, but he's been a lot better of late because the stuff is always there. It's just about, is he going to throw enough strikes? And he, he did in a big way. So, and they, you know, they, they were able to kind of just, I felt like overmatch the DBU offense, which is a, a very good offense. But, you know, it's worth saying that, you know, sometimes this doesn't, mid-major teams that are power-based offenses like sometimes this is how this goes I mean we saw it with Old Dominion and I know Conference USA like do we call that a mid-major like I you know I get it um but for our purposes let's call it that um we saw last weekend you know um in in the games against Virginia they just that offense didn't really work against Virginia even in an offensive ballpark in Columbia and DBU hit some home runs but that was really their only offense was when they ran into balls um, against these Virginia pitchers. And, you know, even Tennessee Tech a couple of years ago made a nice run, but the games they won in the postseason, they did so with pitching largely, um, you know, even in the Super Regional against Texas. So, I mean, that is kind of an interesting thing that's, that's I think, logging away is that, you know, these mid-major teams that survive on, on power offense, like, does that work to the same degree when they start going up against power conference velocity game after game? Because that was the big difference here was that Virginia was able to throw enough arms at DBU where it really never felt like the DBU offense got its feet under him. And, you know, DBU's offense was exclusively being able to square up a ball and hit it out. Um, There were very few extended rallies uh, going on here. And so you knew if DBU was going to win these games, it was going to be because it hit home runs. And against pitching as good as Virginia is throwing out there right now, they just weren't going to be able to do that. And I guess the last thing I'll say about DBU is, uh, again, like I said about ECU, it's, it's frustrating, but I think, my larger point here is that these types of processes to become something greater than what the program has been take longer than a lot of people want them to take. Like it's easy to forget now it took coastal Carolina a long time to get to where they got. And they broke down two barriers, Omaha and national title bang, bang in one year. Right. So like there's a very real scenario where coastal gets to Omaha, doesn't really play well in 16. And now we're still kind of in a place where it's like, well, Coastal got to Omaha once, but, you know, but because they won the national title, they've erased so much of that. But Coastal had a lot of heartbreak until they broke through in 2016. That program had gotten to regionals for the better part of like two decades at that point before they really kind of figured it out. And I don't want to say figured it out, but before they got to that stage. And so we want these things to be really, really quick, but they don't really work like that. Like it really, it's not necessarily linear and it's not continuous. And there's usually typically not like a big bang situation. Like this thing does take a while to to kind of take yourself from being like a little bit of a, uh, an overlooked darling team to like a steady regional team to like someone who can really, you know, play with the big guys to being someone who's actually a threat to win a national title. Like that kind of stuff takes more time than people would think. And I think that's kind of what we're seeing with certainly with East Carolina, but also with Dallas Baptist, like there's just these friction points in this process. And right now they're hung up on one and that doesn't mean they won't eventually get there, but there are plenty of examples we've seen of it just taking some time to, to do those things. And, and, you know, um, still being able to have belief that those things will happen. And the opposite is true though. Also, right. Like, Stony Brook did not become an annual regional team um, because they got to Omaha once, you know, and Kent State 
it still gets regionals more often than Stony Brook does, but Kent State's not making regional finals every year when they get to, to, to regionals. So um, the opposite is also true. There can be one-off results of getting Domaha that don't necessarily mean a ton in terms of like the linear progression of a program. So we tend to draw like these kind of sweeping conclusions on these types of results, but it, it doesn't necessarily um, um, invalidate what, what we believe in the larger picture about these programs. I, uh, I would agree with all of that. I, the, before we move on here, the, my question for you, Joe, is what did you think of Columbia? Um, you know, the, the stadium was, of course, not super full. We talked about in the preview about how like you can't read too terribly much into this in terms of what a neutral site super regional would look like if they all were neutral site. Um, you know, this year's a weird year and DBU is just a straight up small school. There's no way around it. Uh, so not, not a ton of, of traveling fans to begin with because they're just aren't, they have less of them. If you put A&M on the road, something different might happen here. Um, I, I don't know, I, as a result, like I don't know how much we can, can extrapolate from this, but I, it, it was a louder ballpark than, than I thought it would be. Maybe they just mic'd it well on ESPN, but like it, uh, it, it seemed like the fans that were there were really into it and they got to watch some, some really good baseball. And, um, you know, I, I don't know if we'll see this scenario happen ever again, but it was, it, it was probably better than it could have been in, in other scenarios. Oh, a hundred percent. Like I was pleasantly surprised. I mean, it, it sounded good on ESPN. It sounded good. I listened to, yesterday's game on my drive home from Knoxville, uh, pretty much the entirety of it sounded good on the radio. So I think, um, I think there, there were just a, a good number. I think I saw the number at, you know, it was between 1500 and 2000. I, I forget what the exact number was, at least in the opener. Um, that's a pretty good number. Like I really, I thought it was going to be less, frankly, you know? Um, so, you know, I, I don't think it necessarily means anything for the future of it. Cause the, the funny thing about that, and you and I have had this conversation is there are, things pulling in different directions for whether or not doing super regionals at neutral sites would work because in the places where it would work, we're also talking about places where the teams would not want to give up the home field, you know? So if like, if you had an all Texas super, you know, A&M in Texas or something like you could put that thing at the Rangers ballpark or at Minute Maid park or wherever you want to put it, you'd sell that sucker out. Maybe not quite sell it out, but you'd, you'd sell a, Whole bunch I mean, of you'd sell out Sugar Land, you'd sell out Frisco, you'd sell out Round right. Rock, like whether right. or not you sell out Minute Maid or, or whatever they're calling the Rangers Stadium, like maybe, maybe not. Yeah, so like you'd sell a boatload of tickets, but whoever was supposed to be hosting that isn't going to want to basically turn it into a 50-50 crowd, you know? So like there, there are things pulling in different directions as to whether or not that would work. So the places where it would work are probably also the places where the teams would not allow it to happen that way. So it, that's... Um, that kind of stinks because I do think there is like an opportunity for something like that to create like just an absolutely bonkers atmosphere. Like we don't see in college baseball. I just don't think it's probably in the cards. Yeah. I mean, it would have to be a top-down director. Nobody's going to willingly give it up. Uh, but it would be, uh, I, I would love to see, you know, one of those Texas schools. If, if, if we got an all Texas super again, like that, that, would, that would be a ton of fun to see, but I mean, it's also a lot of fun to watch them at Bluebell or, Dishbalk or uh, Dan Wall or, or, or wherever. So, yeah, I, it, it, it was, uh, I'm glad it worked out as well as it did. Um, unfortunate for the programs that this is the way it had to be this year, but, but glad that it worked out. 
uh, as well as it did. Now let's go to, uh, to Starkville, one of these outstanding super regional on-campus environments. It was Mississippi State, number seven Mississippi State and number 10 Notre Dame. Mississippi State wins game one in a tight one. Notre Dame had a late, had the lead late, could not close it down, played some uncharacteristically bad defense. Uh, bullpen couldn't, couldn't hold the lead. Mississippi State comes back, wins that game. Uh, then Notre Dame wins comfortably on Sunday to force winner take all on Monday night. Mississippi State comes out, puts up a six spot in the second inning to go up seven to one right away. Notre Dame was fighting back the rest of the game, but Mississippi State kept adding and then they get Landon Sims in the game. And even though Notre Dame keeps fighting, even with Landon Sims, uh, who is you know just a, a tick behind cops as the best reliever in the country this year, um, Cavadas, Nico Cavadas hit a, hit a mammoth home run off of Sims. Uh, it was not enough. Mississippi State wins 11-7, and they are headed to Omaha for the third straight year. What a remarkable run for Mississippi State over the last several years here. I mean, that we detailed that a lot in 2019, just about how much they had been through in the three-year period there, four-year period, whatever it was, and you know that that they had had gotten back to to that stage. I mean, you can say the same again this year. Um, you know, everyone went through the, what they went through in 20, but this is a totally different team than what they ran out there in 2019. Uh, I mean, there are some of the the same players, Rowdy Jordan, Tanner Allen, chiefly among them. But this is this is a, a very different looking Mississippi State team uh, from what you saw in 2019, and they're uh, they're 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 still rolling. And, you know, they went out and, and they've played really well in the NCAA tournament and they go out and, and they eliminate Notre Dame, a team that obviously I thought very highly of all season long, my Omaha sleeper, the Omaha Irish. Uh, that said, Notre Dame played really well this weekend. And, you know, I, I don't think that you could have reasonably watched that series and come away thinking that, that Notre Dame didn't belong, that they hadn't played, not, they didn't need to validate themselves, but like, I, I don't know how you could watch that and not think like, oh yeah, that's a really good team. Um, but but Mississippi State just uh, they get it done in the new dude, and they're headed back to Omaha, and they're they're going to be feeling pretty good about their chances in the field. I would think. I think they're probably in the tougher bracket, but but just the way that they've played both in regionals and in super regionals, it feels like the the debacle uh, that happened in, in Hoover. Uh, it, it feels like they, they've certainly put that behind them at this point. Now, I read somewhere on Twitter that you had said Notre Dame was going to cruise through the Starkville Super Regional. So I'm, I'm a little confused <laughs> as to what was actually said, because I, that's what I read at least one user on Twitter thought. So I, I thought I'm a little confused. I, I read that as well. And I actually, uh, I, I went back and I listened to make sure I didn't say that. And uh, what I said here on the podcast was that Mississippi State was favored, but I thought that Notre Dame would compete. If you read my picks over at Baseball America in our, um, you know, our, our, our crystal ball before regionals started, I did pick Notre Dame. I would have picked Notre Dame if we'd made official picks on the website last week too, but that, there's a difference between picking Notre Dame and uh, saying that they're going to cruise through the uh, through the Starkville Super Regional. Yeah, it's also like um, there's just like a loss of like this is not a new take. Like this is this is a big problem in our society. Like the lack of nuance and things, and like 
like any to the extent that you ever like would have said that which you didn't like there's also like a level at which you're like in on a bit here you know which is like you know anyway i we don't need to we don't need to give that any more air but um yeah no i think so a couple of rapid fire things like one is um Notre Dame did not have need to validate anything for like you or I, but I do think this was big to kind of validate what they did this year to like the larger college baseball public. And I mean, I worry that they didn't do that though, that if you were a Notre Dame doubter that you're just going to have looked at this and said like, ah, couldn't get it done in Starkville next. Yeah, maybe so. That'd be real. Sh- Again, I mean, I, I, th- I, I have seen those, I've seen those takes. I like, I don't, I don't think much of those takes, but I have seen those takes and they're really unfortunate. And I think part of it is that it says Notre Dame and that if this had been uh, Clemson that had done this, they wouldn't, people wouldn't feel the same way, but you know, it's uh, it is what it is. Um, But, you know, I, I, I think you also do have to, to, you know, orient yourself as a college baseball public here that Notre Dame's going to be good going forward under link chair, like they're going to lose an awful lot of this team. They, they are going to take a step back next year, I would expect. Uh, but I, I don't think we're going to be waiting another six seasons before Notre Dame makes it back to the NCAA tournament. Yeah, I think that's probably right. I think it's safe to say. Um, yeah. I mean, Notre Dame of course is an easy target for this kind of stuff because that is also just kind of their like general athletics brand when it comes to football too, is just like, well, you know, a good team, but how good are they really? Every time they play an SEC team, they get run off the field. You know, that's just the. And, and, and they're easy to, to hate as a, as a, they, they are the villains in the college sports world, you know, Indeed. them and Duke. Indeed. Um, the other thing I was going to say about Mississippi state is, I mean, yeah, it's, it's, it's really kind of incredible. You know, this is the first time in their history. They've been to Omaha three straight seasons. Of course, we, you know, when we say three straight seasons, we're, we're cutting out 2020. Um, I hope as time goes on, we just kind of collectively fully just forget the 2020 season and just really, uh, it just becomes like something like the men in black, like erasing that from our memories um, to where we can say that more confidently. But, um, and that is not anything to be uh, sneezed at. And I, I don't just mean, I mean that generally, but also I mean it in terms of Mississippi State is a storied program. But like they were not a program that was immune to having the occasional year where they would like bottom out and miss regional. Just last place in the SEC, uh, not that long ago. Right, and you don't want to say never say never because the SEC is in a, an expensive neighborhood, if you will, um, and you could take on water real fast in the SEC. Just ask A and M, right? Um, but it seems like that at least for now has kind of been cut out of Mississippi State, and like they're not going to get to Omaha every year, but um, it does seem like the the the, the bottoms uh, the bottom falling out is something that's not really necessarily on the table, except for maybe the most catastrophic of situations. And whether that's because just well, the power center in college baseball has continued to to move into the deep south, or the new dude has made it to where like they're always going to recruit at a level where that just seems completely implausible. Whatever it is, and there will be time to dissect that. Whatever it is, like what they've really turned themselves into is is really quite impressive to where like. You know, you can put some teams in the SEC ahead of them just because they are still waiting on their first national title. But uh, they are among the class of that conference just in terms of what they've done consistently over the last you know half decade or so, and, and it's it's really really impressive. And they had never won or never never reached Omaha three straight times before this. Um, they'd gone back to back in ninety seven ninety eight, but prior to that was the only time they'd gone in 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 back to back seasons before they went in 18 and 19. Um, 
and the 18 trip, not to discount it in any way, but it was a Cinderella run. They didn't host anything. They didn't host regional. They didn't host super. Uh, I mean, can go back and relitigate whether they should have hosted the super if you want. I'm sure there are some Mississippi state fans that still are probably feeling like they should have, uh, but they didn't. And the, the, the point is they, they were, they were a Cinderella team that needed something on the last weekend of the regular season in 2018 to, to get into to the tournament. Now that year was screwy for so many ways for Mississippi state, but it, it, that's how it went down. And then, you know, in 19, it wasn't like that at all. They were one of the favorites from the, from the start and, and they rolled through and this year more of the same. And so it, it, it's just been different the last couple of times and you can throw 20 and, you know, they were uh, highly thought of again as well. And, you know, so they, they do seem to have found a new gear, whether that's related to the new dude or not. I don't know. Um, could be related to Chris Limonis, could be related to a whole number of things that have changed around the program over the last, you know, four to five years, but it's impressive to see regardless. And like I said, they, they go into Omaha uh, feeling very good about themselves, I am sure. And, you know, they're, they're going to be pretty comfortable there. there. There's a lot, there's a lot of newness every year when you go to Omaha, there just aren't that many repeat teams and players uh, in, in any year, but this year, especially, and they're going to be one of the more experienced teams there. You know, even Vanderbilt with Rocker still, you know, there. I mean, I, I think, and, and the fact that they won the national title in 19, probably, you know, you, you kind of default to thinking that they have all this Omaha experience, but like most of that team is gone. And like, yeah, some of the, the players were a part of the 19 team, but weren't playing significant roles uh, that are still there. Mississippi State isn't necessarily like that. I mentioned uh, that there is a lot of newness and there is, but like if they probably have the most experience of any of in Omaha of, of any of these teams, most postseason experience. And maybe that'll mean something. Maybe it won't. It probably won't mean that much just because everyone is trying to figure it out together. Uh, and it's not like Mississippi State has this incredible wealth of experience. But I do think it, it should mean something that, you know, Tanner Allen and Rowdy Jordan and, you know, depending on who all makes the trip out of the bullpen, that those guys, uh, you know, have been there and, and have experienced that stage before. Alrighty, we got one more of these. And Joe, I you, you said, uh, I don't even remember what you said, but I thought it was, it was, you said it too early. It would have been a perfect segue. Uh, but regardless, whatever it was, we're, we're now headed to Lubbock. Number eight, Texas Tech. Number nine, Stanford. And oh boy, did this not go the way anybody thought it would. Stanford rolled. They uh, Their offense did what Texas Tech offenses usually do in Lubbock. They blew out the Red Raiders in the first two games. This one was a super that was over before you knew it, but it was over before you knew it in an upset way. Brendan Beck was really good on the mound. Alex Williams was excellent uh, in, in shutting down a very good Texas Tech lineup on the road. I uh, I don't like even if you thought Stanford was capable of of winning the Super Bowl Super Regional, even if you thought Stanford would win the Super, I don't think anyone really saw it going down like this. Uh, no, you know, and like <laughs> going into the weekend, like the, the most compelling reason I could give you that 
Texas Tech was going to win that super regional was just that like, well, I mean, it's a super regional in Lubbock. I mean, what are we, what are we expecting here? Right. Like they, they've won these going away. They've won them ugly. They just, they always, they find a way though. And, and boy, this, I mean, my goodness, like my, my goodness. I mean, this was the one, this was the super regional and I would have never guessed it, but this is the super regional where I, I don't think I watched a single second of this one live. Some of it's logistics because I was on the road and whatnot, but like it was just not competitive at all. So if there was any other game on, like I was doing something else, you know? Um, and I think we knew, so what we knew is that Stanford could do this offensively. Um, you know, given Texas Tech's shortcomings on the pitching staff, which, which really came, you know, ended up biting them this weekend. And they, that, that really came home to hurt them. Um, we knew Stanford was capable of that, but, but the way they pitched against Texas Tech, I mean, Texas Tech always finds a way to find offense in these games. And the way they pitch with, with Brendan Beck and then, and then Alex Williams in particular, I think is, is the, the more important piece of that because, you know, Brendan Beck, I think we, we would have expected something like that, or that certainly was in the realm of possibility. But Alex Williams is a guy who started the season particularly late. He didn't throw until the end of March. And he really has kind of been like a, you know, a six inning guy until the postseason. And, you know, he's, he's put two really good outings out there in the postseason, And he's the type of guy that look, when you get into Omaha, if you've got two guys, you feel really good about, you're in pretty good shape if you stay on the right side of the bracket. And so what he did has to make Stanford feel, feel good about what they have on the mound, at least on the front end there, there are questions about Stanford's pitching depth, but, but Hey, you know, you'll, you'll take that trade off if you got the two guys you really feel good about. So I think what, what he did in that second game, I think changes a little bit what we should think about Stanford going forward, but the, the bats were just there from the very beginning and were just absolutely relentless against Texas tech never really gave them a chance to have the feeling like they could ever get up off the mat and, and, and make a comeback at any point throughout the weekend. And, and Stanford, I think is a team that I'm absolutely fascinated to see. They've just been such a mystery. And we've talked about that. They've been such a mystery for a number of reasons. Some of, some of which were just our fault in like overlooking them. And some of them were just logistics of they had a COVID break at an opportune time and they didn't have a fall and they started their season late and, and all those kinds of things. But, but here they are. And I'm, I'm really excited to see them next week, maybe as much as any team, because there still is a little bit of mystery to them. Brock Jones was incredible this weekend. Really, really excited to see Brock Jones uh, on the big stage of Omaha, excited to see what what he continues to develop into as a player here. Um, you know, it wasn't that long ago that he was trying to play both or was playing both uh, football and baseball. Uh, we, we mentioned that on, on the preview with with him giving up football, just how much he's developed over the last year. And I mean, there's I, I would imagine that uh, he's he's going to be really, really highly thought of going into next year as a, a potential player of the year candidate. And, uh, first round pick and, and all the rest of that. But in the meantime, he's an, just an incredible player now. Uh, and, and yeah, Brendan Beck going out there, they wear black on Friday afternoon in Lubbock. It's a hundred degrees out and uh, Brendan Beck, no fear at all against the, uh, the Texas tech offense. I mean, this is, this is a Stanford team that, that's, that's really built over the last uh, few years here in, in 18 uh, they host a regional, they don't get out of it. In 19, they host a regional, they advance, they get sent to Starkville in what felt like an unwinnable super, considering the moment in Starkville, you know, it being the, the end of, of the line for, for Small, for Mangum, uh, for, uh, you know, for, for that whole group. Um, so they don't get out of that, they get swept. 
20, they take a big step back to start the season. Who knows if they would have dug out of it, but they they're, had a, a lot of rebuilding going on. And then this season, they really take a big step forward, and now they take the biggest step forward, and they're back in Omaha for the first time since 2008. Very interested to see uh, what they look like now. And you know, because they are on the half of the bracket that was supposed to be Arkansas, uh, you know, the, the, that opened up a little bit, you know, they now play North Carolina state to, to start. They don't even have to start against Vanderbilt and, and rocker. Um, they don't have to start against Arizona. They, they get to start against North Carolina state, which is not easy. I mean, this is a team that knocked out the, the number one overall seed in the country, but it, but it does feels a little bit differently for them now than it would have if, uh, if Arkansas had won that game against NC state. On the flip side of this, Joe, I don't know how else to to define this, but I mean that that's an embarrassing weekend for Texas Tech. Like just to to get run off your home field twice in a super regional is uh, it's not it's not what you want. And you know they had a million injuries. It felt like this year there there are so many pitchers that they lost along the way. Um, you know, they didn't even get Austin Becker at all this season. Brandon Bird still gets hurt partway through. Um, not a pitcher, but they lost Dylan Noisy. Uh, you know, there, there, were, there, was, there were numerous key injuries on that team. And to have been in the position that they were in after all those injuries speaks very highly to what they were able to accomplish this year. Uh, but still, that was, uh, that's a rough one for Texas Tech. Yeah, no doubt it. It felt like a team that, I mean, really, when we look back at this, I think we, we might be able to rightly look at this team and say that they probably overachieved. And it's a real real credit to Tim Tadlock and his staff and, and that group of players for getting as far as they did, because it was a pretty, I think even if you you restore those pitchers and, and you look at, you know, having Dylan Noisy in the lineup, because Dylan Noisy wasn't having a great year either. I mean, he, he's getting on base at a pretty high clip, but he's not hitting with much power and, you know, was hitting below 300. and but you know, I think there were a couple of things that were playing into that. One is that, um, you know, they did have questions on the pitching staff even before Birdsell went down and, and Birdsell had also been a little bit up and down. Let's not, let's not forget. Um, but they were already shuffling things a little bit on the mound and, and, you know, whether or not they had Brandon Birdsell wasn't going to factor into whether or not they could trust Patrick Monteverde after the first few weeks, you know, stuff. So stuff like that, I think was just playing into that, but it's also the fact that offensively they were just, they were very top heavy. Like JC Young had an incredible year and, you know, Cal Conley had, had a big year and, and Drew Baker, you know, and then Braxton Fulford had a, a big year from a power standpoint, not so much necessarily in other ways, but, and there was kind of this drop-off where they, they weren't getting nearly as much production from the bottom of the order as we're used to them getting. And there's like a whole group of guys who have, have been in the program a while as veterans who just didn't necessarily take big enough steps forward to be the types of contributors that, we had kind of thought they would be whether you're talking about, you know, Easton Morrell or, you know, Kurt Wilson who dealt with his own injury issues or Nate Romback or Cody Masters or Max Marshock. Um, those are, those are all guys who have been around the block with this program. And, and we just didn't see enough of those guys become the types of impact bats that they would have needed to make that lineup a little bit deeper. So I think in the end, as much as we kind of expect Texas tech to be offensive and they, they could be in spots. Like in the end, I felt like it was kind of a lineup that you could pitch to if you were, you know, being careful with the guys you needed to, to be careful with. So 
again, Stanford definitely did it (laughs) for sure. Yeah. So I think in some ways this team probably overachieved, but it's just so weird to say because Texas tech falling short of Omaha is just a little bit of a falling short of Omaha by losing a home to the regional. It's just such a hard, strange pill to swallow at this point. Yeah. I mean, it's, uh, it was definitely one of the better coaching jobs that Tim Tablock has put out there in, in a litany of good coaching jobs um, up until up until the end here when everything caught up to them and then some. Because I, I don't even want to just put this all in the injuries. Like, like you said, that um, they they had issues beyond the injuries, uh, especially, you know, because it's not just that they gave up all these runs to Stanford. It's that they couldn't score. And – you know, most of the injuries were offensive or were on the pitching step, not offensive. And so uh, it'll be interesting to see where they go from here uh, as as Texas Tech, how they respond to this. I mean, I, in this incredible run that they've been on, they haven't had to deal with this kind of disappointment. I, they uh, they took a step back in 2015 after they uh, they reached the World Series for the first time. But really, other than that, they, they just haven't had this kind of, uh, of performance. So uh, as, as they go into the offseason, I will be interested to see uh, what, what they, they come out of this with, um, what, what kind of lessons are learned uh, from this weekend. All right, that is, uh, that is all eight of these supers. Um, like I said, we'll get into deep Omaha predictions in the, the second podcast this week, which will serve as our, our preview for the College World Series. But Joe... Uh, before we before we go here, uh, you've you've had a day with uh, with the field. What wh- where are you leaning? Who who is who is your your first instinct favorite to uh, to dogpile in two weeks at TD Ameritrade? It's a boring answer, but I, I have to go Vanderbilt with what we saw over the weekend. Like maybe East Carolina was not the absolute best offense they could have faced off with, but I, I think at this point. We just kind of have to default to like those two pitchers are just going to be so hard to beat, especially on the big stages. Cause we've seen it from rocker time and again, that's just, to me, that's like a little bit of a trump card here. Um, you know, the other, the flip side of it though, is that I don't know, this is a, this is a Tennessee team that seems to have something. And like, I keep getting hung up on the fact that well, they, they lost series to the, the two best teams in the sec they faced off with. And so it kind of felt like they had this ceiling, but I don't know. There just seems to be a little bit something about that team. And I don't want to be prisoner of the moment having just seen them, but man, there's, there really is an energy about that team and they can beat you. I think it gets underplayed the degree to which Tennessee can beat you in a lot of different ways. They can, they can outscore you. They can pitch better than you. Uh, all of that kind of stuff they, they can do it. And I think that really ends up being a big deal in Omaha when you're going to have games where you're going to have to just figure it out on the fly because your plan A is not really working. And I think they're, pretty well equipped to do that, but I still have a hard time doing any, doing anything, but selecting Vanderbilt, just given what they have in the rotation. That's a, it's a fair assessment of it. Uh, you know, rocker and lighter are a big time one, two punch. The thing is I worry about them. Even if they stay in the winner's bracket, that would mean you'd pitch rocker on Saturday, lighter on Monday, bring it back. I presume to rocker to get to the finals and then not have him in the finals, at least until game three. Um, And even then he'd be on short rest. So they're going to need a third pitcher to step up. Not that their third pitchers aren't capable of doing so, but uh, the one, two 
and the Omaha format don't necessarily go together quite as well as uh, as we would like to see sometimes. And, and it, it happens that uh, teams are scrambling, unfortunately, in the uh, in the finals to because of the way that the, the format sets up for them. Uh, so with that in mind, I am I'm riding with Texas right now. Uh, totally reserve the right to, to change my mind later, but the one, two, three that they have, the three guys they have in the bullpen, the diversity that they have offensively, they're one of the better defensive teams in the field. I, uh, I really like what the Longhorns have here. Yeah, I think that's, I think that that's a, um, a, a reasonable assessment there. I, I was talking to somebody in the press box, uh, well, the, the outdoor press seating area in Knoxville this weekend and, <laughs> You know, he made a similar point that was like, it, it does feel like Texas is a little under the radar here because of, you know, how um, some of that, it, the point that that we kind of came to together as we talked it through was that I think part of that is that we just talked and saw so much like Arkansas and Vanderbilt and even Tennessee and Mississippi State this year, because every week in the SEC, you had these blockbusters, right? And like in the big 12, their big series were Tech and TCU. And like, other than that, we just don't, we don't see them as much. And oh, by the way, they're on Longhorn Network and yada, 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 yada. But it, I think some of that comes into some play. Some of us with, get Longhorn Network. Right. That's true. <laughs> um, yeah. Ty Madden is still like just a rumor to me that he exists. Um, but so I do think they, but I do think it is true that for whatever reason, they do seem to have flown like a little bit under the radar this year for how good I mean, they are. It goes back to what they looked like on opening weekend. I think a lot of people saw what they looked like on opening weekend and were like, okay, next. Like typical, like, Texas. I mean, we talked about the way that Notre Dame's football, um, you know, the way that people perceive them influences the way they perceive the baseball program. I think the same thing happened to Texas. Like, oh, like Texas overrated again. What do you know? Like lost on a big stage. Well, I mean, like this is a different Texas team than you saw in February. Yeah. And I think too, I think that's a good point. And I would build on it and say, I think too, people are very quick to when they see something that, that, um, plays to the stereotype they have. They're very quick to, to glom onto it. And I think that was the case with this Texas offense now looking very good the first six or eight weeks, you know? Um, and I think it's a different offense now, but, but they weren't very good early. And so I think it was very easy to be like, oh, yep, same Texas. Like they can pitch, but can they hit, you know? Um, and people didn't readjust when, when things got a little bit better. So I think you're right. I think it was, they were easy to dismiss early on because of, of that first weekend. And then the fact that it looked like, you know, same old Texas as, as some people would, would put it when, when in reality, that's not really the case. All right. We'll get into uh, more of these picks, breaking down these teams, what to expect in Omaha and more later this week. That episode will come out on Friday. So make sure you are subscribed to the Baseball America podcast on your favorite podcasting app. Be that Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, anywhere you find podcasts. You can find the Baseball America podcast and hit that subscribe button. Uh, you can follow us on Twitter. I'm at Ted Cahill. Joe is at Joe Healy BA. There's plenty to read over on the website, baseballamerica.com, to prep you further for Omaha or to wrap up the, uh, the season as it is, uh, or to get you ready for the draft if you're into that. The Baseball America 500, the, the, the top 500 draft eligible players was just released today. That's Tuesday, June 15. Uh, and you can dive into scouting reports, uh, grades, names, anything you want there, really. Uh, the, the, the top 500 draft prospects list is live there over at baseballamerica.com. So you can check that out there. We will be back here 
on Friday to, to preview Omaha. Uh, until then, I want to thank you all for listening. Thank you to Rapsodo for presenting this and every edition of the Baseball America College Podcast. For Joe, I'm Teddy. We'll talk to you next time. After the end of a good fight, you deserve an ice cold reward. Medela is the mark of a fighter. You've earned this rich golden lager with a crisp, refreshing taste. Because you know the bigger the fight, the better the reward. You put in the hours, the energy, the tough labor. You are a fighter, and Medela is your reward. Medela, the mark of a fighter. Drink responsibly, beer imported by Crown Import, Chicago, Illinois.